This will be something of a repeat from last week, this first part. Found out that Marty was doing the same thing I was to the beginning of his presentation. <laughs> but I'm going to leave it there anyway. <coughs> There's uh, several ways you can broadly outline First Peter. Uh, one of them is centered around the term that Marty called our attention to last week, which is usually translated beloved or dear friends in some translations. Uh, and it's used in, by Peter to kind of break it up into sections. Now he starts out, of course, addressing his letter to exiles of the dispersion and spends the first chapter and a half talking about who and what those believers are and we are in Christ and summarizes it in the middle of chapter 2 but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and then a couple verses later in verse 11 of chapter 2 Peter uses that evocative uh, beloved again to you know first time to to introduce the next section of the letter and um, this will be repetition for you but the uh, introduces this section I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil doers they may see your good deeds and glorify God the focus of this whole section was going to be on conduct. Um, and both in the church and in, in the world. And it emphasized the idea of good doing in the world. We've talked about that kind of translation of the so five, Greek, five different Greek words Paul, uh, Peter uses throughout that are all very similar. Anyway, the, uh, uh, he finishes that up in chapter 4 talking to the church says as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of the very grace of God whoever speaks as one who speaks to oracles of God whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God's supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever amen right we can all say that and then he started another section beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now the focus of the next final section, the third final section of First Peter, was on suffering as a Christian. And that's what he introduces with those verses. The expectation was and is that if we are, in fact, exiles and sojourners in this world, that invariably what we believe and hold to be valuable will come into conflict with the world around us. It's a given. It should be an expectation. You don't find much opposition in our society to churches that teach the prosperity gospel. You don't find much opposition to churches that uh, bent on accommodating the cultural devotion to self-autonomy. But you don't find a lot of toleration of churches 
that preach the good news of the kingdom of God and of the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's we're a step too far for them. But that's what our mission is, and that's what the church is to do. And so Peter concluded that section that Marty covered last week with the idea that it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. Now, if the call for greater scrutiny of the church by those in the church is what the topic is as we kind of end up that section, then it's natural the next topic is going to be talking about church leaders because those are people who are going to be more visible and vulnerable to whatever persecution is out there. It has been true throughout church history. <coughs> it's interesting that uh, we didn't entirely plan it this way, but uh, back when we were doing Hebrews, when we got to chapter 13, and we'll talk about that this morning yet, and there's extensive section there on leadership in the church, uh, that was the first time I had a chance to speak up here and talk about that because I'm not part of the leadership of the church or part of the elders. And so I could speak as somebody who kind of had a foot in both camps in that sense. I get to do that again this morning. So uh, it's, a, it's a particularly uh, favorite subject of mine. I think it's one that's neglected a lot in the church. We'll talk about that a little bit. But let's look at the text, <coughs> the first part of it. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. Most English translations, like this one here, start with a word or a short phrase, so or therefore, or and then, something like that. At the beginning of verse 1, indicating that Peter's continuing the same subject. It's a chapter break, but those are artificial. The subject is still the same as he started in the middle of chapter 4 on what it means to s is Christian suffering. <coughs> it's a continuation of that discussion. And Peter addresses the elders among you here. And he does it identifying himself as a fellow elder. Now that's interesting because in verse 1, the beginning of, the, of, the, of, of chapter 1, the beginning of the letter, he introduced himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, that he could speak with apostolic authority, but I think it's interesting here that he chose to exhort the church leaders as one who was engaged in the same kind of work that they were. He also referred to himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory to be revealed. The question most commentators ask when they come to this is, well, is Peter speaking autobiographically here? Is he talking about his experience as an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry on earth and as a participant with two other of Jesus' disciples in the glory of the transfiguration? Is that what he's talking about? That's a possibility. Uh, and he does talk about that in First Peter chapter 2 very clearly, a recollection of that. But here, I don't think that's really the main point. I don't think that's what he's getting at. We need to keep in mind the discussion is this fiery trial that Peter talked about in the, in the, back in chapter 4. 
It seems more consistent in that context to understand Peter's statements about being a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a particular of the glory to go with chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice in full so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In this sense, he's putting himself with all faithful believers. This is what the, our life is going to be like. This experience they were going to have as exiles and sojourners. And those who, the, who led the church, as I said, would be particularly vulnerable in those kinds of hostile situations if they came up. With the command of shepherding to shepherd the flock, and that is a command, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, and it's qualified by the phrase exercising oversight, this first couple verses of 1 Peter 5 have three of the five words that you find in the New Testament for church leadership. And so I'm going to take a little uh, digression or excursus this morning and talk about church leadership more generally. It's not going to be exhaustive. That, that would take quite a while. Everybody will be glad about that. Uh, the, uh, but I think it's an important subject, and I think it's worth taking some time to talk about. And in some ways, I will be explaining or maybe uh, uh, defending, if you will, depending on your point of view, uh, some of the way we try to do the leadership at Grace Fellowship. So what are the terms for church leadership? Well, we've got two of them right here in front of us, elders and overseers. The designation of church leaders as elders is actually something that was borrowed from the Jewish synagogue. Uh, the synagogue developed when the Jews no longer had a central temple, when they were exiled and, and dispersed by the Babylonians, and it helped hold their faith together. And that same idea of those who led those groups who were called elders, uh, that's similar. It's carried over into the uh, Christian Christianity, very natural kind of transition there, church leaders. Overseers which is another term that really can be translated guardian, and uh, sometimes I think that's a preferred translation of it, um, is, one that is a word that comes from the Greco-Roman world. And it actually uh, refers to uh, somebody who is given a particular guardianship or oversight of somebody to care for them. And it's not so much a supervision as it is a caring for. That's the emphasis or the idea of the word that it carried in the culture. We have that word in verbal form. The noun is overseer or guardian. The verb is overseeing, and that's what we have in 1 Peter 5. During the second century, uh, these two words got separated, and it began to use the word overseer, which is trans can be translated also bishop, uh, and is translated bishop in some Bibles, um, as uh, the office or the position of someone who oversaw multiple local churches that were run by elders. And it kind of got divided up. You began to get kind of a hierarchy developing. As church history went, you really kind of have the whole world of church organization or church polity uh, described by some combination of three words, which I have up there on the screen. Presbyterian which comes from the Greek word for elder, presbyteros, 
Episcopal, which comes from the Greek word for overseer, episkopos, and then congregational, which isn't in the New Testament. Um, that came after the Reformation and introduced really into the church for the first time historically some ideas of a more democratic form of polity or organization. Now the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches primarily draw from the first two of these three types, mostly from the Episcopal or hierarchical kind of church structure. Uh, Protestant churches you'll find all over, all three of these, in various degrees and forms, sometimes combinations of them. Um, I'm not going to argue, try to argue, that there is one particular form of government that is superior to others and should be a cause for taking a stand and saying we hate everybody else who's a Christian who doesn't act the same way. That's not a good thing. Uh, never has been, never will be. But I think I can safely say that the church really is never intended to be either an autocracy or a democracy. Um, it's somewhere in between. It's a very uncomfortable place for most of us. But that's what God has put in place. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into the functions and some of these other terms for leadership. <coughs> One thing I think is important is that in the New Testament, the, the terms elder and overseer are used interchangeably. You'll find them in the same context referring to the same people. Uh, the first half at Acts 20, there's an important passage on leadership. It's a, a, an incident where Paul invites the elders from Ephesus to meet him at a little coastal town in Miletus. And he addresses them there for what he says will be the last time, and it was, uh, and talks to them about what it means to be leaders in God's church, to be elders of God's church. And before he's done with that, he talks about them and describes them as those the Holy Spirit has made overseers. There's the other word that we have, our guardians of the church. Paul wrote to Titus about a follow-up to some of the ministry he had uh, him doing. He said, I left you in Crete so that you might uh, put what remained in order to appoint elders, as I directed you. And eventually it goes on and adds as a qualification of those elders that an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. So we see both words used there again. It's interesting to me that in both these, when you look at the context for these, uh, these uh, ideas, that, that elders were appointed by those who were already leaders, and they were made or placed by the Holy Spirit. Again, that's one of those areas of tension in the church that the church has had trouble dealing with historically. And it will always be there, as long as we live in the sinful world. The description in Acts 20 also echoes uh, Peter's use uh, of a, the other, another term for church leadership. And it's the term shepherding, or shepherd. It's pretty obvious from the Greek word for to tend sheep, or to, to be a shepherd. Um, it was borrowed again from Judaism. The leaders of the religious leaders of Judaism were often referred to as shepherds. Interestingly, I think, the only other place in the New Testament where this word 
occurs as a command like it does here in 1 Peter is in John chapter 21 where Peter is confronted by Jesus and asked and this is the second time there's a threefold thing he does there Simon son of John do you love me and of course Peter with some I imagine sort of because he already said this once just before says Lord you know I love you and then Jesus says to Peter then shepherd my sheep that's it. it's a command that's the other place we find it of course Jesus called himself the good shepherd uh, Peter reminds the, the, the letters of uh, the recipients of Second Peter, First uh, Peter rather, we saw this at the end of chapter 2 that they had returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls uh, this way of referring to Jesus was also used by the writer of the Hebrews where he closed his letter with a discussion of church leaders and then followed it with a benediction, including the phrase, Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. The passage in Hebrews 13 adds another word to this. It's those guiding. Now, usually this is translated leading in almost all Bibles. Uh, but it more precisely describes guiding through influence rather than from a position of authority. And so I think that's an important distinction that makes. And I like, I like the word guiding a little bit better. It actually has come into English, that Greek word, with the word hegemony, which has to do with an influence of a nation or a society over other societies. It's not leadership in a formal sense. It's just an influence, a pressure of some kind that keeps them going in a direction. Jesus taught his disciples, we have this in Luke's gospel, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest of you become the youngest, and the leader, there's the same word, as the one who serves. The writer of the Hebrews exhorted his readers, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. In the Greek New Testament, this word also contains the idea, just like uh, the idea of shepherding and the one that we're going to look at in leading, of care for people. There's a concern going on here. Leading the local church often means leading those being led in unpopular or difficult directions. Uh, it's kind of the opposite of what we see as sort of the operating model these days, which is the... Uh, uh, maximum political science uh, there go the people I must follow them for I'm their leader now that may work for politicians and they work hard at trying to make it work for them but it's completely out of place in the New Testament that's not the way leadership is supposed to work which brings me to the second topic or the subject question I want to ask which is what are the activities of or functions of New Testament elders and again, this will not be an exhausting kind of study because we only get a few things in here. Um, I didn't get leading on there. I should have. All right, skip to the next one. The idea of laboring and admonishing. In 1 Thessalonians, this is the rest of the verse we actually I talked about earlier. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So what is laboring and admonishing? 
Well, laboring, just like it says, is working. There's a job to be done here. Toiling would be another uh, translation of that. And so there's, there's, there's work to be done. And the idea of admonish, that's to, be, that's to correct, really. It carries mostly the idea of correction. And it has to do with um, warning against incorrect belief or incorrect behavior. And so there's a, there's, that's the admonishing idea that we have here. There's also an important statement here in Acts 20 where Paul puts his own ministry forward as an example. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you, everyone with tears. In all things I have shown that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So these are all instructions that, that Paul gave to elders. They're at Miletus. Doesn't sound surprising. This, uh, this idea includes per, uh, the idea of instructing or protecting. Um, the choice of this word instructing is important. In Paul's letter to the Titus on the qualifications for elders, he wrote, as we have up here, an elder must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, I think it's important that the idea of instructing doesn't necessitate any kind of public speaking or teaching necessarily. That's not the only way that can be done. Um, at a minimum, it means the ability to articulate the faith, to defend it to some extent, to know what the basic beliefs are, it doesn't require the gift of teaching. Teachers may or may not be elders in a church that's operating according to New Testament patterns anyway. And Paul told the Ephesian elders specifically that this involved using his example again. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, which is why we spend most of our time here, Grace Fellowship, in the Scripture. Good place to be. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul anticipated the biggest threat would, to the church would actually come through leadership people failing to lead as they should. Some would distort the truth in very subtle ways, so it's kind of hard to pick up and see what was going on. Some are more obvious. What would be obvious about all of them is the interest is drawing disciples after themselves. It's an attempt to be in a position, position of a celebrity or a personality cult of some kind. Is the, when it finally gets to its extreme. Jesus called such people false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, who are inwardly ravenous wolves. He said you'll know them by their fruits. Well, it's easy for someone to say the right words, the acceptable words, even eloquently. It's a whole different thing if you take a close look at people's character. Because character is where you find the fruit of the Spirit. And so those leaders should be exhibiting 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what should be the standout about them, not how popular they are. Like teachers, who James wrote, will be judged more strictly. Elders are accountable. The writer of the Hebrews, to kind of finish out that thought, said, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And because of that, we, as those being led, let them do this with joy. That's our responsibility, not with groaning, for what would be, that would be of no advantage to you. One of the principles, I think, implicit in all this in the New Testament is that there needs to be a plurality of leaders, a plurality of leadership, multiple leadership. The scripture is very realistic in its view of human nature, and there's nothing more dangerous than one person in charge with ultimate authority. Unless it's, of course, Jesus Christ when he comes back. It's the only one we can trust. Otherwise, trust no one. The scripture talks about this, and I think this is why we, you, you know, there's been an accountability between those being led and amongst leaders themselves. There's an accountability. That's how you keep this kind of thing in check. Getting back to our text, we can actually answer the question, another important question, is how is the job of New Testament leadership to be done? Now, Peter used a set of contrasting qualifiers uh, for how elders are to do this, how they're to carry out the imperative of to shepherd the flock among you. And he does it by setting up, I'm kind of put it on a table here for you, a very strong adversity, the word not, that's why I capitalize it here, uh, and then things you shouldn't do, and that is contrasted with, uh, with a strong adversity, but on the contrary, what we should be doing, or what should be seen. So, this idea we have under compulsion, you're not to do that. Willingly, according to God's way of doing things. Not for shameful gain, that's the wrong way to do it, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but on the contrary, being examples to the flock. So look a little bit more at each of these, briefly. Under compulsion, what could that mean? Under compulsion. Well, I think it would include several things that need to be avoided when you're talking about leadership in the church. Being an elder is not an honorary position conveyed because of longevity or faithfulness to the church. That may be true of someone who's an elder, but that's not why you convey that, why you put someone in that office. Neither is it someone being pressed into service or forced to be there because no one else wants to do the job, maybe. It's an office, as opposed to a gift, that has expectations and challenges which need to be made clear to those who are being considered for appointment and certainly clear to those who accept an appointment as an elder. Becoming an elder must be done willingly, deliberately, intentionally, 
And while that job comes by way of appointment, it's not necessarily a lifetime position like a Supreme Court justice or something like that. There may be a time for an elder for various reasons to step away or be asked to step away. They both happen. And those are difficult times for churches. And they don't happen enough. We have this whole list in the last decade or so of major Christian churches and organizations that have just fallen on their face. And a lot of it goes back to problems in the leadership. The church must also avoid this tendency uh, to want to do things the way the world does. This qualification on uh, according, willingly according to God, doing it God's way is important. Uh, personally, I think this argues against the idea of elders being some sort of executive board that hires out the professionals to do the job of ministry. Elders are supposed to be the ministry. They're supposed to be doing the job. The church must avoid a tendency in the society to confuse, I think, a couple concepts, managing and leading. Leading is a set of skills. I mean, managing is a set of skills, rather. Getting myself mixed up here. Uh, organization, uh, communication, analysis of various kinds. It's things you can learn in a classroom. You can learn with experience, practice. But leadership involves character. And character cannot be learned in a classroom or a seminar or suddenly be put on just because you've been put into an office of some kind. It's something that should have been being developing for a long period of time. And it comes from a value system based on objective truth that puts a high priority on personal integrity and serving others. Now the second qualifier where it says for shameful gain or something like that, depending on your translation, is really a single Greek word. This means essentially for selfish and materialistic reasons. And it's contrasted with the, with the word eagerly or something with the little phrase with eager in it. The practice of financially compensating church leaders has a very early start in the church. Um, it's actually became kind of part of or a logical part of the first century cultural hospitality extended to others. It was not unusual during that first century for traveling teachers or experts in various subjects to um, land someplace for a while and they would uh, rely on the generosity of those who are under their teaching for their livelihood. There are several passages in the New Testament that talk about the need to provide for uh, material support for church leaders and teachers. Um, but the New Testament also has an equal number of passages that talk about where fallen human nature has brought into place people who just do it for financial gain. That's not a good thing. And so Paul, for example, was so sensitive about this that most of his ministry, and you can see this uh, in places uh, like in Thessalonians and in Corinthians, where he argues that he actually worked to pay for himself and the other people with him so they wouldn't be a burden to the churches they were serving. I think it's interesting that you're going to find kind of two kinds of people in a way. Uh, some people who... Uh, are fine with the idea, and I, I think it's very appropriate in many cases, 
where there's a support provided for someone who has pretty much devoted all their resources to being in a position of leadership. But there's also people who, for just as valid reasons, will say, you know what, I don't want to go there. That's not comfortable. I'm not comfortable there. I may be in a position of leadership, but I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it working to, to pay for my own way and those kinds of things. A good church, a healthy church, could have both people in them. Now, Paul warned the temptation of this is that people who were getting contributions because of their teaching or speaking or leading, which is often not appropriately associated uh, in the church today, would be tempted to kind of things people say things people want to hear rather than what the scripture says. And there's some strong warnings about that. Uh, I'm personally thankful that I don't think you're going to find that at Grace Fellowship. But that's only going to continue to be the case as long as all of us keep our eyes on what the Scripture says and hold one another accountable for it. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the contrast of shameful gain in Peter's exhortation was eagerness to serve. This is interesting. The only place that word occurs in the New Testament. But it is found in secular writings to characterize someone from a city who enthusiastically provides time and money for civic activities. So that gives you, this is very similar to the set of words that we talked about, could be translated good doing or good doers that Peter used throughout. The third qualifier contrasts domineering over those or lording it over those in the charge uh, with being examples. Um, and I want to look at a parallel passage. We talked about Luke earlier. In Mark, we have Jesus called the disciples, his disciples to him, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first century Mediterranean honor-shame culture was a place where you could count on a life where it was a series of contests to preserve or enhance your honor. Social contests, there are a whole set of rules surrounding it. And in a culture where status was so highly cherished and where power was easily you know, used to preserve your, your position, this idea of humble leadership was foreign. What, foreigners and aliens? That's what we are. This is going to be foreign to the world around us still. Now, it's interesting that this whole idea of humility as a virtue you don't find at this time period when the New Testament was written in the culture. It didn't really come into its own until after Christianity spread throughout Western civilization. And then it held its position as a virtue pretty consistently during the centuries until probably the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Then you start beginning to see a decline. And unfortunately, we're continuing to see a decline. It's been pretty steady over the last century. Um, 
And now what you find is, is it doesn't seem to be as important anymore as power and dominance. Peter's contrast between domineering and being examples, I think, gets to the heart of what has been described as the dangers of the abuse of power that are universal at all levels of its exercise. Elders were to be examples of humble service to those in their church fellowship. In his perceptive analysis of contemporary Christian leadership, James Davison Hunter wrote, it's a great quote, whether leadership is expressed within the dynamics of celebrity or outright arrogance rooted in a sense of superiority, such leadership is artificial, unbiblical, organizationally unhealthy, inherently corrupting, and all too common in the Christian world, especially in the United States. Christianity needs to discover an alternative. We just read the alternative in 1 Peter. That's the alternative to what's going on around us. The final thought in Peter's exhortation to the elders was to remind them of two very important points. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The first point, elders are under shepherds. That is the implication of the chief shepherd. Anybody else is an under shepherd. The second one is the reward is not in this world. If you're looking for a place of leadership in the church to make it big in this world, you've got the absolute backwards motivation to what Peter's talking about here. Run for office. The image here is of that victor's crown that was often given or a laurel crown to people who won athletic contests uh, or sometimes it was even used for people who had performed extraordinary civic duties. But that's not going to happen until the end. It's not going to happen until the Lord returns. The final statement in the discussion of church leadership was addressed to those who were not elders. So most of us now got to pay attention. We could have ignored the rest of it maybe. We got to pay attention now. <coughs> Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now I put this up here the way it did because you who are younger is one word in the plural. Youngers. It's a good way to think about it. The word likewise looks back to verse 1, the exhortation that began, you know, that, that Peter started here. The word younger is the Greek word neos, which could be referred to as anyone who's a novice or someone new in something. <clears throat> in a healthy church, you're going to find those that are among the youngers who are older chronologically or physically, or even older in the Lord. That's not what's important here. <clears throat> Among the circumstances of this kind of age difference, though, and the fact that elders do exercise authority, and we all have human nature that hasn't dramatically changed as much as we would like, there could be friction in those kinds of situations. And so Peter anticipated this when he finished out this section. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, 
For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, that is almost a direct quote from the Greek Old Testament of Proverbs 3.34. And I put on the screen a translation from the Greek Old Testament, from the Septuagint. The Lord resists the arrogant, but gives grace to the humble. And then I use the same words over in the English translation of 1 Peter 5, translated them the same, because the Greek texts are almost identical. And so this was the foundation for what Peter was trying to get at here. Now, we're going to talk more about humility next week when we wrap up the last part of Peter. For now, though, I think it's just important that we understand or keep in mind that uh, humility was not a a virtue in the Greco-Roman culture. This had to be a real work for the people that Peter was writing to. Peter knew that all believers would need help to navigate their former cultures in which we find ourselves as foreigners. And for the church to be a help, it has to be a community that holds itself accountable to the scripture, and it has to be a community that includes elders who are mature in the faith to whom the youngers can make themselves accountable. This will only work where there is genuine humility on the part of everybody involved. It won't be perfect, but it will get the job done the way that God wants it done. I think this idea of humility and the uh, importance of humility is a great way to kind of think about what we're doing here this morning to have communion together. We take that all Equally as believers, uh, the elders will often service that, which is kind of an image or a picture of, of the kind of service they're supposed to be. And to kind of get that going, get the musicians back up here. And Al, if you want to come back up, elder, a little older than I am, not much. <laughs>